Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Adams, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders around the world. In today's episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with Mark Greenberg. Mark received his PhD at the University of Virginia in Developmental and Child Clinical Psychology. Through his work at Penn State University and in organizations like CASEL and CREATE, Mark has been instrumental in shifting our focus from student achievement to student achievement and well-being. Mark has worked tirelessly to ensure that we don't forget our educators in the process. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Signature Leadership Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here as my guest. It's great to be with you, Jen, and have a conversation about educators. Exactly. And uh, the audience doesn't know this, but I had the opportunity to meet you, Mark, uh, in Tel Aviv, where we were helping with a, an SEL conference there as they uh, launched their initiative across the entire country of Israel. And uh, I had the opportunity to meet you after reading so much of your work. And uh, I count you as a friend and a colleague now. It's, uh, it was wonderful having that opportunity. Me too. It was a fantastic opportunity, and it was great to see a country in which uh, teacher training organizations, the ministry, uh, mayors of cities, uh, leaders of school districts are all on the same page in wanting to promote the well-being of children and educators. I agree, Mark. You know, I don't think I remember seeing very many examples of countries that are that far along in really looking at implementation of any type of initiative, let alone SEL, where it literally has all of the players at the table. And that's where we know that there's going to have success. Exactly. Because really what we're looking at, I think, to really make education, the schools, healthier places for children and adults is really not just doing the work on teaching skills to children and to teachers. We all need new skills and new competencies, but it's really creating systemic change. Absolutely. So the audience already knows a little bit about your passion just based on a couple of comments that you've made so far. Let's give them an opportunity to kind of see who you are and how your journey began in education. I know that you're a doctorate in psychology and uh, tell us about your path and what's led you to the point that you're at right now. Sure. I was trained as a developmental and, and child clinical psychologist and in my training, you know, I learned to do treatment with kids and with families, but I always was oriented towards the idea of promoting well-being and preventing problems rather than treating them. We can treat as many kids as there are that have needs, but that won't reduce the number of kids in the next year or the next generation that have needs unless we create a system that is healthier, that gives kids the skills to become resilient and to give them power, to empower them during childhood. And we know that uh, there are lots of risks that children face in this world, and of course, many more now because of, of both COVID and violence. And so the ability to give children skills from the beginning of life, and in, especially in school, is an essential component of what develops a healthy society, a society in which we have citizens that are prepared to really participate in a democracy. That's what really attracted me to your work, Mark, because I love this stance on prevention rather than treatment. You know, if we're waiting until children and adults are not well, 
uh, it's just we have to go all the way back to the beginning with them. And why not focus on prevention where we will actually be able to reduce the number of children and adults that are suffering? I love that approach. You are currently the Emeritus Professor for the Bennett Chair of Prevention Science. And I love that term prevention science, and it really talks about that focus that you have on prevention. Tell me what prevention science is. Well, prevention science is a new field that sort of uh, ties together public health and uh, psychology, education, social work, epidemiology into a more integrated field. And the idea of prevention science is to understand both what are the risk and protective factors that affect development, and then to develop interventions that will build those protective factors that will promote well-being and prevent problems. And I began with this work, actually, turned out I began it with children who were deaf in 1980. So I'm dating myself now due to my clinical work. I saw some deaf children that was clear that they didn't have the skills they needed. I didn't quite understand why that was the case. And so I started going to schools for deaf children, trying to understand how they were taught, uh, why they were having difficulties. And uh, in 1980, I and my colleagues developed a curriculum called the PATHS curriculum, which was first done really in sign language uh, uh, in schools. And what we're able to show is by doing what's now called a social-emotional learning curriculum that taught kids how to stop and calm down how to uh, understand and articulate their emotions, how to solve everyday problems with their friends. And what we found was that uh, by doing this kind of work, we were able to improve children's, of course, their understanding of emotions and uh, their problem-solving skills, but also it changed their behavior. They became more uh, resilient in their behavior. They showed less negative and more positive behaviors. And we actually showed that it affected their cognitive abilities. And that began a series of studies now there have been, I think, uh, 13 or 14 randomized trials of this curriculum with hearing typical children and also with children in special needs around the world. It's from Pakistan to Australia to uh, Sweden, all different kinds of societies in the outback of Australia. And basically, like other social-emotional programs that are well-constructed and in which teachers are given sufficient training, we see that it leads to positive outcomes, that both children become more engaged in the classroom and more ready to learn. It affects their what we call their executive functions, their cognitive abilities around planning, and it affects their behavior. They show fewer behavior problems and are more likely to have positive relationships with teachers and peers. And that's what we want for kids. We want to be able to create educational settings in which children learn the skills that make them competent and resilient. A couple of comments on what you've just said, Mark. The first one being, I think it's really good for the audience. We have lots of young educators that come on and listen to these podcasts. And I think it's really good for them to hear your example where you dove deeply into a particular topic that was of interest to you, a passionate area of yours to want to help and understand better the needs of, of deaf children. And from that, you were able to take that step and then go into, well, what would be the impact with the broader population of students? And that initial step from a career path, you start off going very deeply into an area that you're curious about, you have passion, and it leads to a really important career that is helping millions of children and educators around the world. 
Well, I hope so. And you know, the funny thing and the interesting thing, not so funny, but interesting is that we started with children that were deaf. And so you would think, well, almost nothing comes from special needs children or special education and then goes into general education. But we learned a lot from working with deaf children about how to be visual in a way that really works for uh, sort of the learning styles of most children, not just deaf children. And so, for example, when we taught children about emotions, we used feeling faces, little faces of the different emotions that were color-coded. And it turns out that just like for deaf children, hearing children, you know, when you're five or six years of age, you know, happy, sad, fine, tired, and excited, basically. But it's not a very good way to articulate how you feel. So, for example, feeling frustrated is, is different than feeling angry. And feeling jealous is different than feeling mad. And so the ability to articulate these different emotions is important. If, if, for example, if you're a teacher and you go up to a child and, who's having a problem and you say, um, what's happening? How do you feel? How does the other child feel? And the child says, I'm mad. You'll probably treat them in a very different way than if you went up to the child and they said, I'm feeling really frustrated right now, mm. or I'm feeling jealous. And that's why I did what I did. And so the ability to articulate emotions more effectively affects the dialogue that teachers have and the outcomes for kids. We know this for adults, too. We know that adults who have more words for emotions and can express them better in the right settings, of course, not in a neurotic way, but in a healthy way, have better physical and mental health because our ability to regulate, understand and communicate our emotions is one of the fundamental human abilities that affects our health and well-being. When you talked about uh, that idea of looking at deaf children first, it kind of reminded me of that concept where we know that there's certain strategies that are necessary for some, but good for all. And it sounds like that's what you learned in your work with the deaf children population. It was necessary for those kids to be able to approach the work in that way because of the challenges and the gifts they have as being deaf children. But what you learned from that were things that would work very well. They were good for all children. And that's where we start to have huge impact, right? We take that research with a very select group of children and we see what's generalizable across the general population as having impact. Exactly, exactly. The other thing, Mark, that you mentioned was the idea of the prevention or the, the prevention science. And I loved what you were talking about, that interdisciplinary approach where you were talking about public health and psychology and education working together. I mean, that department, I know you had a, an inspirational leader that uh, suggested that there be a department like that and created that chair position and that you took it from there to have it put in place. You were really early adopters of something that I think now, particularly post-pandemic, we're really seeing the need to be integrating and interdisciplinary. We need to have psychology and health and education and social working together to make sure that we're looking after the learning and the well-being needs of our students. That's right. And you know, the universities are not set up to do this very well. Colleges of education are often segregated from the rest of the university. But we see some changes. We see some, uh, some colleges around Canada and the U.S. in which they've integrated psychology into the College of Education and human development into the Colleges of Education. And that's what we need because to really create great teachers, we need to create people that really understand developmental processes in a broad way. They un understand the neuroscience of what's going on with children. They understand the uh, social and emotional needs, as well as just general cognitive abilities and how to teach children in a way that they learn as effectively as possible. 
Yeah, I, and I think, you know, K-12 to has a lot to be learned about that as well. And I think we're doing a better job of partnerships with public health, etc. But we still have a lot of work to do in that area as well. It's not unique to post-secondary. Let's move forward and talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing recently. And, you know, you made the transition from focusing on research that was on children to focusing and social-emotional learning of children, to shifting it over to adults. Tell us a little bit about the organization that you co-founded called CREATE. Yeah, well, CREATE was founded for that very reason, that uh, most social-emotional learning has been focused on children and not on adults. And yet uh, the teacher uh, is the most important person in the classroom. The principal is the most important person in the school. And you know, as a superintendent, <laughs> Jennifer, that what you did as a superintendent affects everybody all the way down the line. And so we think about the classroom as a unit. We know that teachers that are warm and supportive, they know how to develop effective relationships with kids, they are good listeners, and they also have good management skills, are much more likely to teach everything in the curriculum better. They're better, they're better at teaching reading and math, and guess what? They're also better at teaching social-emotional learning. So one reason is that uh, we just want to help teachers become the best pedagogues that they can be. And we know that teaching, just like any other profession, is something you grow into over time. It's just like being a great lawyer or a great doctor, right? It takes time. It takes experience. There's a, a growing wisdom that you get from both your successes and your failures. So that's the first reason, I think. But the second reason is that um, teachers are under such high stress. And, and we knew this even before COVID. We knew that from Gallup polls and other assessments that teaching is one of the most highly stressful professions. There's nothing harder than being in a classroom with 30 kids all day long with almost no break. And um, how many people work in a job in which they don't see other adults most of the day? They just see children. And as we know, having been parents, that uh, even one or two children can drive you batty at times. Imagine what 30 can do. And so the ability to really recruit their attention and teach them really relies on the teacher being well. As we know, if you come to school in a day and you don't feel very well, you're not going to teach very well. And when that happens, children are going to become more disruptive and less learning is going to occur. So teacher stress is a very important issue. And so we want to do all the things we can to reduce teacher stress and create developed a series of programs that were tested in careful randomized trials that we've shown do that. The first program is called CARE, and CARE is a series of three days of retreat for teachers. And we've randomized trialed it in Pennsylvania, in New York City, in Zagreb, Croatia. And teachers learn some skills around mindfulness, but not sitting on a pillow. Our idea of mindfulness is how are we interpersonally mindful? How are we present with other people? How well do we listen? How well do we understand what they're trying to tell us? How do we manage our own stress to, just to take a deep breath or two or, or to set an intention for how we want our day to be and how to be more caring and compassionate, especially when times are difficult? Those are the things that we teach in care. In the randomized trials, it shows it reduces teachers' symptoms of depression and anxiety and perceived stress. It improves their well-being and their physical health. And observations with uh, 225 teachers in New York City showed in the trial that it improved their actual teaching. Even though it's not about a curriculum for the children, it's really about teachers' own personal development. And even though we don't talk at all about pedagogy, as you would guess, people that are well and feeling good and able to manage themselves well in the classroom are naturally going to teach more effectively. And that's what we see. 
it's really interesting that connection between teacher well-being and pedagogy because i'm not sure if there's a lot of research that actually shows that link but to be able to demonstrate that it it just heightens our ability to make the case for how do we make sure that our teachers are are well yeah and, and there is some developing data on this our friend kim shonert reichel did a great study in british columbia in which she showed that when teachers were uh she looked at how many depressive symptoms, how much burnout they had. And then she looked at the cortisol, circulating cortisol, which is a stress response in the physiology of all the children in, in classrooms. And she found that classrooms in which teachers had less burnout and were more well, had children whose circulating cortisol was lower, which means they were less stressed. So we know that what the teacher is doing and feeling is affecting the kids. And we know longitudinally that teachers who start the year with more burnout have children who show less progress in both math and reading across the year. So there, we know there are some causal relationships here now, but these randomized trials really solve the question of does supporting teachers affect not only the teachers, but also the children? We have another study, uh, another project called CALM. And CALM is the same kind of idea as CARE, but it's a yoga-based model in which teachers are, are invited to 15 minutes, four mornings a week before school starts, of yoga program. And it's done for 16 weeks during the year. And uh, we've done this in a randomized trial with middle school teachers. And we've shown that uh, it not only affects their well-being and their perceived stress, teachers that come at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, that no one comes all four days, of course. They also showed lower uh, circulating cortisol, that is their stress response improved, and their um, diastolic and systolic blood pressure reduced. And we know that the high blood pressure is, of course, a, a great predictor of bad things like stroke and heart attack. So when we do this work with teachers that helps them to manage their stress, we're not only helping them to teach better and to have better relationships with children, but we're actually going inside their body, if you will. We're getting under the skin and helping to create a healthier uh, system, psychophysiological system, that will hopefully keep them teaching for years longer and enjoying their job. That whole look at the science in the body, the whole physiological response, that's new information that we have now. And I think it, you know, there's always been lots of questions, you know, does it really have an impact, et cetera. To be able to have that type, people that are questioning whether this has an impact, I think it's really good for being able to say we actually have more evidence that there's a physiological response and it's impacting how they feel about themselves, how they want to continue on with being in the role. We know that there's a huge question around teacher retention and a, and a huge challenge with that. So to be able to have this kind of data that is making it very obvious that these types of programs and strategies actually build on their mental health and well-being and their physiological, their physical health, that's just great information for us to have. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we, we often think about the only outcome of being a children's academic achievement. Everybody is driven by PISA and, and government politicians that want to see improvement in test scores. But another measure of how well a school district is doing is how it is able to retain its teachers and how many teachers are out for long-term mental health leaves and how many teachers are missing because they're taking mental health days. And how many teachers are what we'd call presenteeism? They're not operating very well. And then what are the healthcare costs? Because we know that the primary costs for school districts are primarily in personnel and benefits. And if we're able to reduce the number of teachers that turn over, which is estimated to cost about $15,000 
per teacher. And we're able to reduce their health care costs because they're well. And we're able to reduce their mental health days, which means fewer substitutes. Then another measure of our effectiveness as a school district is really an economic one. And if we can reduce those costs, which are about 85% of the costs of a district, we have more money to do other things. Absolutely. And when I think of this whole idea of teachers, you know, not being able to either they're leaving the profession or they're leaving the school or the district or they're off on sick or, you know, physical or for mental health reasons. What we don't think of always is the impact on student learning. We don't think of the kids. And, you know, when I think of in our school district, it was really hard when there were movement in and out of classrooms and children having to get accustomed to the next teacher's way of doing things. And where it was really challenging was where we had children with special needs, where that routine is that much more important. And to have this, you know, situation where you've got adults changing and coming in and out, it just makes it very hard for their well-being and very hard for their readiness to learn. And so, you know, investing in the well-being of teachers. And the other thing I like about, you know, even in your title of CREATE, it's not just teachers, it's teachers and administrators and educators. We're very fortunate to have all sorts of support educators in our classrooms. So it's that broader look. But it's the adults that are in our classrooms, in our schools that we need to be investing in so that they can be well enough to help with the well-being and learning of their students in their classrooms. That's right. And as one superintendent said to me, he said, the problem in my district is not the kids. It's us. We need to be better at what we do. We need to be more well so we can teach better, so we can lead better. And uh, that leads to the issue that while programs like CARE or CALM that teach teachers stress reduction and mindfulness and how to become more aware of their own emotions and the triggers and biases they may have to be anti-racist, et cetera, is all important. There's a problem here that we may blame the victim. That is that the problem is the teachers aren't competent enough. And it's true that we all need to become more competent. We're all learning more. As uh, Oscar Wilde said, only the naive know themselves. As throughout life, we're always trying to become more competent and learn from our mistakes and our challenges. But we also need to think systemically. What is it about districts and how they operate that's not effective? What is it about the structure of how a school works that may not support teachers the way it should be? So we want to think about the skills and competencies of teachers, but we also want to think more about the system. What's the system by which we train teachers and how we prepare them in the first place for their first job? How do we induct them in the first couple of years and support them and nurture them so they'll love their profession? How do we support superintendents and principals so that they know how to create these nurturing but challenging environments for teachers and for students? We don't want to just nurture. We want to nurture and challenge. And that's true for us as adults as well as for the students. I love how you've approached that, Mark. You're looking at the individuals and how do we uh, help to develop their competencies and, and skills, but also how do we look at the collective? How do we look at the structure? And, you know, many of the people that listen to these podcasts, they are in those positions. They're either school leaders where they're creating a, a school that has the conditions to support well-being of adults, or they're responsible for school districts. And again, that whole idea of organizational structures that, that help to support one of the things that um, in the district that I led uh, as superintendent, 
we had a real focus on student achievement. And my background was that I was a program superintendent. So we had really gone hard on literacy and numeracy and culturally responsive pedagogies. We did a lot of good work in that area. And when I came in as superintendent, the elected officials said, you know, Jen, you've been good at the student achievement part, let's start thinking about what does well-being look like? And they were ahead of their times. This was back in 2011, and they were early thinkers in that area. And so, you know, we brought something forward that was, uh, we had a board improvement plan for student achievement, and we brought a, a parallel document, a board improvement plan for student well-being. It was really interesting, very similar to what you're saying, Mark, is that when we did we had questions back from the school principals and from the teachers and, and the staff in the school saying, we love the idea of focusing on student well-being, but what about our well-being? And the same thing when we got a little bit more, you know, we defined what were the characteristics and the skills that we as a district would move forward for students. The teachers and the principals came back with the same thing. That's great. We will help children develop those skills and characteristics. But what about how will you support us in developing our skills and characteristics so that we can actually be better models and know what that can look like for the students? So I, I, I like, you know, the way that this is going is that it, it's everyone. We have to be looking at both sides, not just the students, but the adults as well. That's right. That's beautiful. And, and this requires that we work together better within the politics of education that school boards and superintendents and unions join together more because it's to the advantage of a school board to retain teachers because we know as teachers uh, mature, they teach better. Not only that, it creates more structure and stability for schools and especially in high-risk neighborhoods, more structure and stability for the neighborhoods. And unions similarly want teachers to be retained and to be well. Because teachers that are well are going to teach better, and we're going to all have higher achievement scores as well as better well-being in our communities. And so this is an area that I think both unions and school boards can join on instead of one that they are in conflict on, as they are in many other issues. And there have been some leading organizations in all this. I think uh, EDCAN in Canada is an example of an organization that's really led on this issue of well-being for both teachers and students. And in America, the American Association of School Superintendents is another example, where now it's not just ground up that teachers are stressed and no one knows what to do, but now for the first time, the idea of adult or educator SEL is now on the lips of many people. And I think it's mostly, unfortunately, due to COVID, but we have to take advantage of the situation. As uh, John Kennedy said, if you see a hole, run through it. And that is now's a time in which we're really talking seriously about adult SEL. And unfortunately, it's because of the stress of COVID and because of the number of teachers that have left the profession. But it's a time for us to think really deeply about what we want, what kind of schools we want to have, how should we be training and supporting teachers in order to make those schools that we all yearn for? It is an incredible opportunity, Mark. Some of your research, you know, you've obviously looked very closely at student resilience. And now we're talking about teacher resilience. Does it look different? Are there different elements across those two groups? Yeah, I think there are some. I mean, they're similar in some ways, but I think the biggest skill for adults is really learning to listen. And teachers, uh, men in general have this problem, I think, but teachers are problem solvers. And you're a teacher in a classroom, you got 30 kids. It's sort of like being in a mash unit where kids are coming up to you continuously with this problem and that problem. And your goal is to get them back, solve the problem, move quickly. Let's keep everybody engaged, et cetera. And so oftentimes there isn't much listening. 
there's a lot of quick problem solving. But listening just to hear what someone is telling you so they feel seen and respected and valued is something different. And this is a skill that we don't learn very well and is not taught. So I'll give you an example from a care workshop. I'll tell you an example of a teacher. And this is a teacher that I was teaching in a disadvantaged school in a minority neighborhood in a small urban city. And uh, she had a student. She came to the care program. And one of the homeworks in the care program is uh, after one of the retreat days is to pick a child you're not getting along with so well or you don't know very well in the classroom and do what we call the child interview. And that is just take 10 minutes and get the child talking. What games do they like? Do they have brothers and sisters? What TV shows do they watch? It didn't matter that or what. But the idea is to, is to just get the child talking. And so this teacher picked this little girl who she wasn't getting along with very well that was triggering her because the little girl came in late to school almost every day. And because she was coming in late every day, she was disrupting the first period, which was math class. And so she actually had isolated, had moved her desk a bit away from the other kids. So she knew that she was having a problem with this little girl. And so she did this interview and she just listened to the little girl. And what she found out was very deep for her. She found out that this little girl's mother was a shift worker and would work from like eight at night till three in the morning and come home and go to bed. And it was the little girl's job in second grade to get her kindergarten brother dressed and ready for school and then take him to school. And of course, imagine being a second grader and doing that. It was very hard. She would often not get her brother dressed in time and get his breakfast, et cetera, and get him to school. So when the teacher realized what was really going on in this girl's life, she felt really embarrassed and humiliated by the way she treated her. It was a very difficult situation for her, but she realized that she had to change her behavior. And so she told the little girl that she would hold her breakfast for her because this was a free and reduced breakfast school. She could come in anytime she needed to, and she wouldn't be seen as disruptive. And she moved her desk back with the rest of the girls. And what happened was, of course, this girl started to come a little earlier. The teacher developed a positive relationship with her, and she began to really engage in learning. And that was just from a 10-minute period in which the teacher really listened to a child that they didn't know. Interesting. And so uh, what do we learn from each other when we really listen to each other? What does a principal learn when they really take some time just to listen to each teacher and get to know them? And so we know that relationships are the key here to learning. We don't learn without having relationships. And so the more that we can help teachers develop relationships, the more we can help principals develop healthy relationships within the building, the more likely our people become engaged with each other. And when you care about someone, you're really ready to work for them. Teachers are more ready to work for a principal they care for and feel seen and respected. It's the same for students in the classroom, students who feel seen and valued and respected are much more likely to work harder on a math problem than they would otherwise and to persist. It's interesting, Mark, because you've kind of made a transition into the next topic that I was going to want to highlight, and that's what are the conditions that need to take place either in a school or within a classroom that really supports educator resilience? How do we create the conditions within our school? And you've already talked about one of them is really valuing relationships and building relationships, and, and that will help to build educator resilience. Are there other conditions that need to be in place? Yeah, I think that uh, two other conditions, I would say, one is just general conditions for learning that teachers learn how to manage classrooms in a positive, proactive way. And when children still can't manage themselves, we have good restorative justice practices at the level of the school. 
Nice. So that the conditions for learning. And then the third one, as you would guess from knowing me, is that good social emotional learning is critical for kids at all developmental levels. Just like we teach math in different ways to first graders and eighth graders, the same is with uh, social emotional learning. We can teach children about emotions in kindergarten or first grade, but we can't talk about what gossip is and how gossip affects children until well, fourth and fifth grade, when they begin to gossip about each other and some get invited to birthday parties and others don't and feelings get hurt. Or similarly, we know that the dating issues are very big issues and, and that they are a big focus in middle and high schools because of what the dynamics are of peer relationships and learning how to be a good date, learning how to manage a dating in a way that doesn't lead to sexual violence, doesn't lead to hurt feelings, leads to developing healthy relationships. These are key issues for us, right? As, and it carries into our marriages. And so social emotional learning looks different at each grade level, just like math or reading would. Mm -hmm. And we need to integrate uh, social emotional learning into schools in a deep way. And that means it goes in curriculum and instruction. The most important thing for school districts or school boards to think about is where does it belong? It doesn't belong with counseling and social work in what I'd call the fire department of a district, which is where you solve problems. Instead, it should sit in curriculum with math and STEM and reading and all other subjects as a core part of what education is about. And this is what John Dewey said back in 1893. Uh, this is what Aristotle said about the heart and the mind. These are not new ideas. They've been around in education for a long, long time. But we've become so focused on academics that we've lost the really the perspective of what education is about. It's about much more than teaching children reading and math. It's really about them becoming whole persons in a participatory democracy. And we know now that uh, the average child is going to have somewhere between 7 and 15 jobs during their adulthood. And so their ability to learn these flexible skills of social and emotional development, being able to communicate well in groups, to manage challenges, to, to handle failure. These are the kind of skills that employers are now saying are the critical skills. We can always teach people technical skills. In fact, the technical skills we need now, we won't use in 10 years because the technical skills will change. But these social emotional skills that make us resilient and make us good partners, make us good family members, make us good coworkers, they're not gonna change and we need to institute them as early as possible. I love how you make the connection between resilience building in children and resilience building in, in adults. And when we can't negate, we can't uh, forget either one of those groupings, it's so interconnected. Just before we wrap up, Mark, you have an opportunity. You've done research all over the world, obviously, all, all throughout uh, the U.S. Have you got examples of jurisdictions where you really are seeing that they're moving forward, looking at caring for the educators and building educator resilience? Have you got any examples that you can think of off the top of your head where you're seeing good work in that area? Yeah, it's beginning. You know, I'm uh, right now f functioning as the interim vice president of policy at CASEL, and CASEL is the collaborator for academic, social, emotional learning in Chicago. And we have what's called a district initiative where we work uh, intensely with 20 U.S. large districts. And we can take examples of districts. I'm actually doing a webinar uh, next week with uh, Atlanta Public Schools, in which Atlanta is an example. It was a district in terrible shape 10 years ago. It had a cheating scandal. It had all kinds of problems you can't imagine. And they have rebuilt themselves in part with social emotional learning, both for children and adults as central. 
central to their work. And I think they're an example, but there are a variety of examples of places around the country. And that's why now more and more districts are asking for the kind of work like I mentioned in Care and Calm. And people can find out more about these at uh, createforeducation.com. Because now people are realizing, just as we've said in this conversation, that if we want to create healthy schools, we've got to work on supporting educators, as you said, all educators, including superintendents and assistant superintendents and principals and special needs teachers, our art and music teachers, bus drivers, everyone in the system. And that means also reaching out to parents in a new way so that parents can also learn what we're doing with kids. If there's one place which parents are really want to join with schools, it's on making sure their children have friends and feel respected and valued. And so social emotional learning is a place where parents and teachers and school boards can really join together with a goal that they all agree is important for everyone. I think this is a really positive way of ending this conversation, Mark, because You've described resources and programs that are out there that individuals can access. Any individual can go in and have an opportunity to be building their own skills and their own resilience. But you've also balanced that with examples and descriptions of what schools can do as a whole and what jurisdictions. I mean, Atlanta is a perfect example. It takes great leadership to say that we are going to look at holistically what we're doing in our schools. And that's where you're going to have a massive impact. It's not just up to every individual trying to buy into this. It's about really setting the stage and making sure that all of our educators and all of the students within our jurisdictions can see that vision and can be part of it and get the support that they need. You got it, Jennifer. That's it. That's the big picture. We have to think about both individuals, but we also think about systems. And Individuals are all parts of systems, and unless we make systems transformations that make the systems healthier, we will never reach the goal of the kind of schools we all want to have in our communities. Mark, on behalf of the audience, I would like to thank you for spending time with us today. And uh, to the audience, uh, you can be sure I'll be tapping on Mark's shoulder again to follow up on these conversations. Great to be learning about teacher resilience and look forward to the next conversation, Mark. Thank you very much. Be well. Thanks to Mark for joining our podcast today and for sharing his experience supporting students and their educators on building resilience and well-being. It's a privilege to hear from an expert from the combined fields of psychology and education. We know that interdisciplinary collaboration is key to ensuring we have healthy, motivated professionals in our schools. Mark has helped us to see that we can all play a role in this important work. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may be interested in another podcast with Dr. Mark Brackett from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, where he speaks about permission to feel, unlocking the power of emotions to help our kids, ourselves, and our society thrive. You can find it on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Portal. This is the final Signature Leadership Podcast for this school year. We've learned a lot from the amazing guests who've shared their journeys with us. We look forward to welcoming you back for our next season. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in August. Music